Well, good morning, and may the blessing of the Lord be upon all of you. I don't need to introduce myself anymore. The name was up there. This is a Sunday of firsts for us. In the first place, Helen and I have been going to church together for over 66 years. This is the first time she came into church on wheels. That was necessary because on July 20th, she made one wrong step, fell hard, and suffered multiple pelvic fractures. That changed my life completely, instantly. I became a nurse and a, and a homemaker and a caregiver. Um, for four weeks, she was absolutely helpless. Exactly two weeks ago, the first time I saw her stand up by her mirror in the washroom and look at her face in the mirror after four weeks of being down. Anyway, I sometimes thought maybe I'm doing work that should be done by the professionals, by the nurses who are trained for this. You get paid for it. <laughs> but, but the two doctors we consulted figured it would be okay if I carried on, and Helen was quite happy to be with me. So here we are, first time like this. Oh. And that, by the way, provided me with a whole new background for the preaching I was planning to do today. Because that's another first. This is the first time in the history of this church that somebody stands here and um, plans to present a Labor Day message. I'm not sure about the, the long distance past, of course, but I, I've, we've been hanging around this church for exactly 40 years this Sunday, by the way. And um, Labor Day has not been touched. All of this started a year ago when I commented to Pastor Jason. I, I noticed that we always very faithfully celebrate Christmas on Christmas Day and Easter on Easter Day. Sometimes we also celebrate the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And sometimes we do something about the secular holidays like Thanksgiving and Mother's Day when we honor the women who are mothers and offend those who are not. Uh, but we never do anything about Labor Day. Well, about two months ago, he called me up and asked, I still remember what you said. Can you fill the gap? Okay, here we are. It's Labor Day. By the way, Labor Day actually had to do with work when it all started. In 1882, the labor union movement in the U.S. arranged a parade in New York City to celebrate work. That started it. Hey, did you notice those words? Strange, isn't it? Celebrate work? How does that sound to you? That makes sense? Or is that a hopeless anomaly? You know, an anomaly is when we put two words together that just don't fit together. Celebrate work? I'm asking you to think with me a bit now. Can you celebrate work? Do you see work as a curse or as a blessing? Is it a punishment for being a sinful human or is it a God-given privilege? Is it normal to enjoy it or would you see such a joy as a weird sickness? Should we beg God to spare us from it or ask God for more? Should we pity ourselves for having to work or thank God for having work? In which direction would you like me to take this message? I won't, of course, you don't, I won't listen to you. Anyway, first of all, we'll have a little social studies lesson on work. 
And then we'll have a little biblical lesson on work. Six social attitudes towards work that we could have. First one is this. There are those who hate work. They see work at best as necessary evil, as an unavoidable calamity. On the job, they do as little as possible, as slowly as possible. When they see another person working with a smile, they suspect a case of mild insanity. Their motto is, never do today what you can put off till tomorrow. One of them said, work, I love it. I can sit and look at it for hours. I think that was said by a woman. A, a man would have said, work, I push it aside and go and play golf. Mark Twain is supposed to have said, work is what you do when you'd rather be doing something else. And that's where we'll leave it. The second viewpoint is this, those who see it as undignified. That's more serious. You see, the Bible had its base in the Jewish culture, and Jews respected work. Every man was expected to learn a craft or a trade, even the scribes. Jesus was called a carpenter. Although we don't read a word, about, a word about his carpentering work. But he was called a carpenter, Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Paul was an actual tent maker. The Jewish view was that a scribe had lost something important if he was so academic that he'd forgotten how to work with his hands. However, the Greeks of that day had a different mentality. Greeks saw work as being undignified. It was for slaves. That's what they were for. It was for the low-class people. The ideal for cultured Greeks was to be free to go to the baths in the day and discuss philosophy in the evening. The European nobility later on, after they started getting civilized, saw manual labor as being for the low class as well. Their high-class calling was to dress in finery, go to stately balls, ride on fox hunts, and arrange wars that their working people fought for them. Thirdly, those who see it as a necessity of life. We have to work to eat, to buy things, to escape poverty, to earn holiday time, and to gather up some credit with the Canada Pension Plan so that we'll have something to, to, to live on once we have to stop working. This was the view of my parents. I learned it from them. I think my father despised lazy people because they were usually poor and they deserved it. And I learned very early that it was by working that I could create my identity. And by working, I would prove my manhood. My dad never praised me or thanked me for my work. But I found out that he sometimes boasted about me to the neighbors. Because I was so precocious, I could manage matters better than other guys my age. And that made him look good. Fourthly, there are those who are addicted to work. Some, peaks, some folks are enslaved to work. They're obsessed with work. Unless they work, they get a headache. Addiction counselors have noticed that work can become as controlling as alcohol or drugs or chocolate or going fishing or watching TV and sports, well, you name it. The standard definition of addiction is this. When the only remedy for the misery caused by the problem is to more of it, to do more of it, then you're addicted. In other words, the only remedy for weakness and work frustrations is just to work harder. 
Psychiatrist, pastor, Wayne Oates called such people workaholics. That has become sort of part of the English language by now. And then there are those who see work as planned for us by God. And with this, you notice that the mundane theme of work begins to take on a bit of a holy tinge, doesn't it? Some say God was a worker and we are designed to be like him. I don't know about that, whether that is a valid comparison. But anyway, it is true, though, that in the beginning, Adam and Eve were workers. They were created to be workers. Their work was to look after God's creation. And by the way, that was before they sinned. So this notion, which sometimes circles around in Christian among people, that, that we, we have to work because we're sinful people, that's not true. We were, we were made to work before we ever sinned. In the, back, in the past back there. It is true, however, that sin has changed the nature of work. When God spoke to Adam and Eve after they had uh, eaten the forbidden fruit, he warned them that from now on, the ground would produce thorns and thistles, and it would take hard work to make stuff grow, and they would have to eat their bread by the sweat of their brow. That doesn't sound like fun. They'd have to work for it. But in spite of that, work remains an opportunity to exercise our God-given creativity. And I suggest that God is pleased when we enjoy working and, and when we are satisfied with our useful accomplishments. When the cabinet maker looks at a well-crafted piece of furniture and says, that's good, I think God says too, that's good. The homemaker who changes an ugly lot into a little park. The farmer who turns useless bushland into a productive farm. The preacher who takes a pile of confusing ideas and puts them together into a sermon that people actually listen to. Do you know that joy? The joy of looking at something. A new skirt or a beautiful piece of pottery or a flower garden or a quality essay for your professor and being able to say, my mind conceived it, and my hands made it. Good for me. And by the way, it's a well-known fact that work has therapeutic value. Disabled, injured, depressed, handicapped people often recover faster when they start using their hands to make things. One more, number six. There are those who regard work as worship. And here is something which may seem too radical for some of my Christian listeners. Work as worship. Work as a way of worshiping God. Listen to what I, I find in the Apostle Paul. I think this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So, says the Apostle, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. If we do it for the glory of God, then with it we are worshiping God. I think I grasped that quite early in my life. I have explained that to some four men for whom I worked, that I wasn't really working to please them. I was working to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And I won one foreman, I won't mention his nationality, but, but Mr. Litwinka was so astounded by that, he just said, I don't know. And he stomped off. <laughs> anyway... In my Mennonite background, 
we, were, we gloried in the ability to work hard. At least my father and his, the neighbors did. But I don't think there was a smidgen of this theme that our working is a way of serving and glorifying God. For a demonstration of that, I have found the Cistercian people of the 11 and 1200s. The Cistercian was a Roman Catholic monastic movement that began in, in Europe and then moved to England and got found settled there in, around, in early 1100s and carried on for a few centuries. My wife and I have traveled several times in England and we have visited two of their old monastic ruins. The most famous one at Tintern in Wales. I think that's famous because some poet wrote about it. And then the much better one at Revo in York in the north. And I studied the whole Cistercian way of looking at things and I admired them. Because back in those days, they combined prayer, silent contemplation, and farm work into a unique blend of godly living. That's a social studies lesson. Now we go to the scriptures. And of course, I'll start with Proverbs, right? Our pastors have held us uh, in the book of Proverbs for a few months. And to the themes which they have pulled out of Proverbs, I now pull one other theme, the theme of laziness. They have not dealt with that because I specifically asked Jason to please skip that, leave it for me for this sermon today. You see, the book of Proverbs, Garth and, and uh, Jason have frequently mentioned over and over again, contrasts always wisdom and foolishness. But the writers see laziness as the ultimate foolishness that could be. Lazy people are called sluggards in the older versions, six times. My modern Bible calls them lazy bones. Oh, by the way, did Garth or Jason ever mention the fact that the book of Proverbs is the only book in the Bible that is sometimes outright funny? Laziness is so foolish and so stupid, it just sometimes looks funny. Hey, uh, I want to read for you now a few verses. Listen to this. First of all, where is chapter 6? So here we are. Um, verse 6 to 11. Go to the ant, you lazy bones. Consider its ways and be wise. Without any chief or officer or ruler, it prepares its food in summer and gathers its sustenance in harvest. How long will you lie there, you lazy bones? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will, will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed warrior. I skip over quickly to chapter 24, and there I read these humorous words. Verse 30. I passed by the field of one who was lazy, by the vineyard of a stupid person, Notice, lazy person is a stupid person. And see, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and a stone wall was broken down. Then I saw, and I considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed warrior. 
One more. Chapter 26, verse 15. Listen to this. The lazy person buries his hand in the dish and is too tired to bring it back to the mouth. Get that? This, by the way, comes from an era when kitchen utensils had not yet been invented and people ate the way God planned that they would eat, with their fingers, okay? This person sits there, he has a bowl of mush in front of him, shoves his hand in there, but is too lazy to do this. <laughs> okay, that's enough. Now we go from the wisdom of Proverbs to the unwisdom of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is old. I don't say that the book of Ecclesiastes is unwisdom, but the book of Ecclesiastes describes how life is. And he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Our modern Bibles say, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Twice in chapter 1, the writer says that trying to figure out life is like chasing after the wind. And then the writer contradicts himself. Did you know that biblical writers sometimes do that? Just like preachers. Uh, sometimes they say one thing and the next Sunday they say the other thing. Anyway, after he has said this over and over again, that everything is meaningless, then in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Know that there is nothing better for them, that means for people, who are trying to figure out what life means. There's nothing better for them than to be happy. Have you ever heard a preacher say that in this church? There's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. That is so important that the writer repeats that, that set of things twice in other places in Ecclesiastes. What is important, if you can't figure life out and are confused by everything, just Enjoy your food, enjoy your drink, and enjoy your work. That's it from the Old Testament. Now I go to the New Testament, and I take two lessons from the Apostle Paul. One is a very practical lesson, which is actually too practical for our comfort, and the other one is a very nice theological lecture lesson. Here is the practical lesson first. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 to 13. Let me explain briefly. When Paul wrote his second letter to the Thessalonians, he'd heard bad news about the Thessalonian church. He had been there, and he wrote them a letter, the first letter, and it seems that that first letter gave them occasion to form bad habits. Because in the first letter, he emphasizes in every chapter that the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. He's coming. We'll see him again. And it seems that the people in Thessalonica put two and two together. You know, we have the freedom to do that with our thinking minds. And they decided, well, if the Lord is coming back, and if he's coming back very soon, the way Paul sounds, then why should we go to work? Uh, we'll just eat and eat and eat. And if we run out of food, then we'll get some from the neighbors and wait for the Lord to come back. Oh, Paul is upset by that thinking. He says in chapter 3, the second letter, he gives them the works. Verse 6, chapter 3. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is serious stuff, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they receive from us. 
For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, so we might not burden any of you. This is not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Ooh, that's heavy, isn't it? There's a Spanish proverb which says, Men are naturally tempted by the devil, and an idle man positively tempts the devil. The Thessalonian people, Christians, had adopted a false view of work, and that gave the devil a chance to mess up that Christian community. In their idleness, they had become busybodies, meaning they meddled with other people's affairs. And that's no laughing matter to Paul. In fact, Paul is horrified by such behavior. Not Christian at all. And such misguided living requires strong church action. Keep away from these idle people, he says. If you don't want to work, don't give them food. Uh, but that, that, uh, that hardly sounds Christian, does it? Some think Paul was quoting a Jewish proverb here. But anyway, he uses it. He, everybody should work quietly. I don't think that means that you have to shut your mouth on the job. It just means that you should work peacefully. Not rant and rave about how bad the boss is or not plan a strike or stuff like that. Um, that work quietly. And then he says, if these idlers won't obey this counsel, then you should have nothing to do with them. The purpose seems to be that they will shame these idle beggars. But notice the careful caution. He still says, don't treat them as enemies, but warn them as believers in verse 15. And by the way, later on when he wrote another letter to the Ephesian church, he writes about work too, very briefly. But he says, I don't want people who are stealing to keep on stealing. That, that, that has sh shaken up Bible scholars immensely over the years. Was there actually a church in which the Christian members of that church were stealing? Sounds that way. Paul says to the Ephesians, stop stealing, get to work, so that you have something to give to the poor. By the way, he also says very severe things about idleness, uh, busybodying, in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, it is, yeah, where he says, I hear that some of the young widows in your church there are busybodies. They just wander around, they gather about, they go from door to door and make trouble. He says, I want the young women to get married, have children, and behave themselves. No, he doesn't say it exactly that. But he says that they should be, stay at home and do what is right instead of meddling in other people's lives. Paul's basic principle is that people should look after themselves by doing their own work. And he reminds them how he did it when he lived among them. In other words, we may be holy people, we may be, may be God's chosen ones, but that does not excuse us from the need to get busy and get dirty and sometimes get very tired. Then there's another lesson we have in the, the Apostle Paul. 
Paul does not contradict himself, but he matures. All at once he has a deeper insight than he had earlier. And he gives us that deeper insight, a letter he wrote about 10 years later. There, in Colossians chapter 4, he wrote this, verse 24. Chapter, Colossians chapter 4, not chapter 3, where I'm looking. Colossians chapter here we are verse 22 slaves listen to that he's talking he has talked to the fathers he's talked to the children now he talks to the slaves slaves obey your earthly masters in everything not only while being watched and in order to please them but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ. I think it's a dreadfully unfortunate thing that has happened in our evangelical circles. It happened years ago when this term Christian service was invented. Certain people were called into Christian service. That was a wonderful thing. And it was especially wonderful if it was full-time Christian service. But why is that wrong? Because that divided the people in the church into two camps. Those who are doing Christian service, praise the Lord, and all the others who are just working, period. Notice, Paul is speaking here to the slaves. They were just working. Slaves in those days were the people they had to teach the kids. Oh, and by the way, did you know that this modern concept of homeschooling is at least a few thousand years old? The Greeks had slaves. There were no schools among, in Greek culture. They had slaves to do it. And the, so the slaves were the, looking after the kids, teaching the kids. They were looking after kitchen work. They did the gardens and they took care of the pigs. And this, all this work is supposed to be done wholeheartedly. Do it with all your heart, with enthusiasm. Then Paul must have been reading Ecclesiastes. So whatever your task, he adds, you serve the Lord Christ. Do you sense the mind-boggling aspect of such a view of work? If you are connected to Jesus by faith, then whatever you do becomes a matter of serving Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, whether your work is in a truck or in the kitchen, whether it is um, in an office behind a monitor staring at a computer, or whether it is nursing, helping people in a hospital, whether your work is teaching school or standing behind a pulpit and speaking God's word like this, whatever we do, it's always, if we are connected to Jesus Christ, a matter of working for our Lord Jesus Christ. Years ago, I came upon the writings of Dorothy Sayers. She was a British writer of fiction and plays, but she was also a pretty good theologian. I sometimes quoted her when I taught theology because I liked the way she expressed her theology. Dorothy Sayers gave me this. 
Work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. Did you get that? We don't, first of all, live to work. We don't let work to live, but we live to work. I liked it. Then after a few years of pondering that, I realized the mistake there, the error there. Dorothy Sayers, I thought, was not nearly as wise as I first thought she was because there are always among us unemployed people who can't find work, people who send a resume to 20 different employers and don't get one response in, in, one reply in response. They're with us disabled people who used to work but can't anymore. They're with us pension-off people who are told you're too old to work longer. You have to leave now. If we live to work, where do such people find their sense of self-respect? Unemployed people have told me that the worst thing about this is the feeling of being worthless. So it seems to me obvious that while we honor work and celebrate work, we also have to learn to live with not working and to live with people who are not working. We must learn to respect those who cannot come home with a paycheck anymore because we will always have uh, with us the unemployed and people whose low education disqualifies them from a good job and disabled people and people who have retired into poverty. And we know that the entire Bible, if you read it, you'll find always, always reminds us to look out after the poor. The orphans, the widows, and the aliens are to be supported. These were the poor of that day. And I reminded you that Paul says this, the thieves in the congregation should start working so that they can help the poor with their giving. I think it is not wrong when we expect able-bodied and able-minded people to work and maybe sometimes remind them of it. I've tried uh, um, infecting my grand adult grandchildren with that philosophy. I'm not quite sure if I'm succeeding yet, but I'll keep at it. I think it's always right to be ex expect to work and hope to work and try to work, but it's always wrong when we look at the fear, at the poor, and the unemployable with contempt. I think it's always right that we look at the other's poverty with an attitude of kindness, because kindness is never wrong. Compassion for the poor is always godlike. And now, in conclusion, I say thank you to Jason for giving me this work to do. And I thank you for listening to the work I've been doing here now for the last half hour. And if you agree with me that work is good, then you will agree with me in my closing prayer now. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the vision you had when you made people and put them into this world and gave them work to do. Father, some of us have enjoyed work. We have rejoiced in work. We've been blessed by work, and we thank you for it. And if we have those here today who wish they could work, who wish they would get a job, we pray for them too. Would you grant that their wishes may be fulfilled? And if we have here those who, because of age or disabilities, are unfit to work, 
we pray that they will find some deep meaning in the kind of life they are now living. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.